Father, we thank you with your announcement from glory on that amazing and awesome day so full of the resplendent glory of the pre-incarnate Christ revealed even to the eyes of three chosen disciples, Peter, James, and John. When the heaven's loudspeaker declared from God the Father, from you, from the almighty realms and unreachable vast expanse of your holiness, behold the Son, my Son in whom I am well pleased. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that it became possible to be reconciled to an almighty and holy God through the very work of the Son, the second person of the Trinity, His death on Calvary, His resurrection, His redemptive, atoning payment for sins where our Lord and Savior took on the burden of our debt and through the propitiatory work on Calvary absorbs the wrath that each sinner in this place deserved if they would but place their faith and hope and trust in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. This day, Lord, as that word came born, from the voice of you, the Almighty, I pray so today that your voice would be born through the proclamation of your word and that it would be born through the elements at your table, that each heart in this place would be reassured of their salvation in Christ alone. As your word goes forth to the believer, may he or she be equipped by the proclamation of the same to be faithful unto the advancement of the kingdom and crown rights of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. As your word goes forth to the unbeliever, potentially in the sound of these words today, may that revelation of your justice, your majesty and glory cause such a deep and profound conviction of sin that it can only move the hearer to bow before the majesty of Jesus Christ and plead on the ground of his blood and broken body that their sins would be forgiven, that they might have eternal life. We thank you that in your holy word, which we turn to today, is the very power to accomplish these things as your spirit applies it to our souls through the proclamation of the gospel. I pray that you, O Lord, would be glorified in our midst today, that your word would be rightly proclaimed in spite of the frailties of the servant that brings it, and that it would be heard in clarity and truth in spite of the ears that hear that you might have your will and way in this place to prepare us to glorify you beyond these doors to the praise of Jesus Christ, His kingdom and glory, His name alone. And it's in that holy name of Jesus we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Hallelujah. This morning, what a glorious privilege it is. What a gift to our souls to be able to open up those scriptures together and to consider them. I'd encourage you to do so by turning with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter 1 will continue in our communion, first Sunday of the month series, in this second epistle by the great apostle Peter. Today we'll consider verses 16 through 21 under this title, Nothing But the Truth. Now, in a court situation, I'm sure you're familiar. If you haven't been there, you've seen it in movies. Do you swear to tell the truth? The judge, the authority in that proceeding asks the person about to testify. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? And then the hand is placed upon that which represents authority to judge. If they fail in that regard, the Bible, and they answer in the affirmative if they are a legitimate witness. Peter himself was an apostle and a witness, and he has sworn, he has vowed, he has been moved by the Holy Spirit, so to speak, to proclaim nothing but the truth. 
And the, this is a primary theme in the opening of his second letter. It's a theme and a message that the church needed then and certainly needs today. Therefore, the aim of my sermon this morning is to declare the authority of the scriptures and to proclaim to you that in them is nothing but the truth and by them all other truth claims are to be judged. Out of reverence for God's holy word this morning, as you're able, would you stand for the hearing of God's immortal, infallible truth? I'm reading to you again, 2 Peter 1, 16 through 21. Here is the word of God. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. <clears throat> let, you me, let me uh, remind you of a list of seven supplements to our faith that Peter has expounded in verses 5 through 7. Recently, we have studied and considered, with the amplification of the rest of the book, these seven virtues, or these seven qualities, which include virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. That's that list that Peter references when he says, for this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. Supplement your faith with what? Well, those seven things, virtue, knowledge, uh, self-control, steadfastness, and so forth. There is one unique uh, quality that stands above the other, or that stands out among the others when you consider this, however. Among these, there is only one quality for which Peter himself is a direct source. So kids in the room, I got a question for you. What one of these qualities do we look to Peter as a source of? Do we look to Peter as a source of virtue, yes or no? No, we don't look to Peter as a source of virtue. How about self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection? Is Peter a source of any of these? Love? No, he's not. Does anyone know the quality which Peter is a source of? Shout it out if you have figured it out. Godliness, good guess, good guess, not quite. Another guess, anyone? So the adults, you can answer. What of, which of these qualities is Peter a source of? Knowledge is correct, thank you. Peter himself was a witness, an apostle, and as such, he had the duty of proclaiming the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, his uh, experience with the same and the Word of God as he was commissioned to write the Holy Scriptures. We do not look to Peter to supply us with virtue. We look to Christ for that. We look to Christ for self-control, his word for steadfastness and godliness. But we do rightly rely on the apostles in a sense directly for knowledge. As an apostle, Peter was a witness, a witness commissioned by Jesus himself to supply the church with a knowledge of the gospel. 
Now, it is obvious that Peter embraces this responsibility with utmost care, reverence, and sincerity. Now, let me hasten to add that if you're a believer in this room, you also have a calling to proclaim the truth of your own testimony and experience and rightly represent Jesus Christ as an ambassador of Him as you share your faith with others. And Peter teaches us to take on that duty, that duty of accurately representing the gospel with reverence and with care and with precision and so forth. It is obvious that Peter embraces this responsibility with sincerity and reverence because he understands the weight of that call. He understands that the church is built upon the apostolic witness of the revelation of Jesus Christ. And he will suffer no imposters. He will suffer no Bible twisting. He will suffer no corruption in this regard. Proof of that is the next chapter which opens. But false prophets, see a contrast here. He, a legitimate witness, he testified to that voice born from heaven, but to one false prophets also arose among the people. Just as there will be false teachers and the remainder of the chapter identifies, discerns, and condemns this, so to speak, false testimony. It's a thorough repudiation, chapter 2, of the false knowledge claims by way of irreverent, opportunistic, and self-styled prophets. So if Peter approached his duty to represent Christ and the gospel with care, reverence, and sincerity, the false prophets of his day were irreverent, opportunistic, and self-styled. And we face the same kinds of things and dangers today, I submit. So as against the promoters of what Peter describes in our text, quote, cleverly devised myths, Peter lays out a foundation for authentic knowledge in our text today. I don't know if anyone's familiar with uh, a kind of big philosophically charged word, epistemology. I'll give you a different area, uh, dictionary definition. This is Merriam-Webster on epistemology. Quote, the study or theory of the nature and grounds of knowledge, especially with reference to its limits and validity. So the study or theory or nature, uh, study or theory of the nature and grounds of knowledge, especially with reference to its limits and validity. Now sometimes I like to put big words together, and the two that I wanted to title this sermon was were apostolic epistemology. And that sounds a little bit too smart for its own good, right? Nothing but the truth is the title I settled upon. Nevertheless, suffice it to say, it is very important to realize that what Peter is laying out for us is the true source, authority, limit, and certainty of how we know what we know. For Peter, in this passage here, he is making a philosophically powerful claim, one upon which a correct worldview will and must be based. He lays out a foundation for authentic certainty. He lays out the nature and grounds of knowledge with reference to its limits and validity. Now this question, how do we know what we know and how do we know it's true, sounds kind of, you know, like a question for professors who have too much time on their hands and need to impress somebody with a doctrinal thesis. But if you think about it, it really is underneath the thinking and the claims and the operating default setting of the mindset, the worldview, the day-to-day opinions, interactions, convictions, claims to reality of every single individual. Peter calls us to attention 
and to notice, to pay attention to what the foundation of true knowledge actually is. It applies to everything, to everyone, in all ages, at all times, and to not realize and build a life, an opinion, a society, a church, a family, an endeavor, an ambition, a vocation, I don't care what it is, on some other foundation is in accordance with that parable that Jesus said. As far as knowledge goes, it's on shifting sand. Have you been tempted or are any of us tempted at any given time to build our house on the shifting sands of the world's certainty claims? Our cultural's corrupt and sinful presumptions. Absolutely we are. And these are so common and readily accepted in the cultural air that we breathe that it's almost like you can't escape it except that we have a sufficient tool by which to judge the authority and knowledge claims of our culture. And that's what Peter is giving us today. The Word of God, the apostolic testimony, testimony, the grounds for certainty he has laid out before us. So these things that he states are a tool for us to navigate confusing truth claims in a godless, idolatrous world and culture that we might shine and set the course of our attention towards the morning star of Jesus Christ until it rises in our hearts. And that's what Peter says in this passage. Peter answers the question, what is the source, authority, limit, and certainty of what we claim to know? In our text today, Peter presents an apostolic epistemology, a framework for legitimate gospel truth that will equip the church to remain orthodox, that means telling the truth, and resolute, that means keeping her confidence, unto the day of Christ's return. Orthodox and resolute unto the day of Christ's return. Wow, that seems like a hard task, doesn't it? When the dial of persecution has turned up a few notches? To, to remain telling the truth and to do so with confidence, that seems like a tall order, does it not? When everybody around says that's hate speech, or everyone marg uh, seems, you know, the majority voice of culture wants to ostracize you or even deem building a life on such things illegal by some fiat claim to law. Well, there is a sufficient resource for us to stand in days like these. Those are the days that Peter faced and those whom he wrote, after all. And it is his words. And it is Second Peter. It is the whole testimony of the counsel of God. So may we heed his admonition and stand in our day. Let me give you a heading this morning to consider under four categories our text today. Peter underscores the weight of apostolic testimony. So the claims of the apostles. Peter underscores this first by pointing out false claims or the antithesis. That would be the opposite. Second, Peter underscores the weight of apostolic testimony by qualifications. What is a true apostle? Thirdly, he underscores the weight of apostolic testimony by the revelation of Christ, appealing to the revelation of Christ, which he himself saw with his own two eyes, heard with his own two ears. And finally, and most powerfully, he underscores the weight of apostolic testimony by referencing the standard of truth, which is the scriptures, the recorded word of God that we read from today. First of all, consider the weight of apostolic testimony given claims to the contrary, the antithesis. Peter says in verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But on the contrary, we might add, but he says, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. First of all, Peter acknowledges that there is such a thing, prevalent, deceptive reality in his culture, and I would say ours as well, of claims to the contrary, 
twisting, the twisting of the truth and the antithesis of the foundation of true certainty and knowledge and the anti-gospel, if you will. And he describes it in three words, cleverly devised myths. So he highlights the truth by contrast, pointing out that the world is thick with claims that are nothing more than the imaginations of vain idolaters. Turn with me to chapter 3. I just want to give you examples from the first one from our text. We'll go several examples of cleverly devised myths. The one he addresses, this is one of my favorite one, or references because it pertains to our experience as well in such a profound way. 2 Peter 3.1. Now this is the second letter I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Remember, that was a vision statement for his ministry he gave in chapter 1. He's continuing to double down on this purpose. And then he says in verse 2, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So what's he doing? He's calling his readers' attention to the apostolic testimony. Then he says, here's going to be a cleverly devised myth, verse 3, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. What is scoffing? It's making fun. It's belittling something that someone believes or holds. Following their own sinful desires, he says. So that's their motivation. They, their sinful desires move them to make fun of the claims of Christianity. And then verse 4, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? Oh, you Christians worship at Jesus, you say will return. Don't you have a whole shelf if you go back in the history of the Christian bookstores of false predictions when you're God and Savior will come back. They might scoff at you. That may be true that people have predicted the second coming of Jesus and have done so as fools and missed the date. But that does not uh, weigh, uh, that is not evidence that Christ will not return. That's a logical fallacy. That's a scoffer, idolater, uh, challenging our faith by standing on the wrong source of knowledge. What is that? Well, they say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact. And here's the evidence that their claims are false. The heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by the means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. So the God-haters, the scoffers, their uh, objections to Christianity presume, in fancy words, uh, naturalism, you could say, or um, this claim that there, are, there is, no, uh, there is no, nothing supernatural, there's no superintendence. So their skepticism presumes naturalism. All that ever is, is all that we can measure in the laboratory. But in making this claim, this is a cleverly devised myth, Peter is saying, by the way, putting two and two together. And making this claim, they slam their hands over their eyes when they look at creation. There was a time when this world was without, was without form and void. And by the word of Almighty God, he said, let there be light. And light arose from nothingness. And matter was created by the word of God where none existed prior. Now, if you study cosmology, which is the field of science that tries to come up with theories, hypotheses of how everything got going in the first place, the origins of the universe, 
You're going to come up with the most uh, fool. You'll be reading in very academic language some of the most fanciful what-if stories, make-believe, fairy tale, couched in academic language you could possibly realize. One person astutely said that he who embraces the cosmology of one generation or marries the cosmology of one generation will be widowed in the next. In other words, when it comes to man's theories about where we came from, they are like children, four-year-olds in the playground, pretending that, oh yeah, maybe Batman made us, or maybe some superhero spoke, or maybe alien panspermia, or maybe us ancient spacecraft came and revealed knowledge, blah, blah, blah. All this stuff is ridiculous. What is it based on? It's based on a denial of what's obvious when you look at creation, that it can't exist of its own accord. But there was a moment when God spoke this world into being. Yet their skepticism presumes naturalism and says it's always been this way. Second thing they overlook is the great flood. God in his sovereign power snapped the fingers of his judgment and flooded this entire globe until the tallest mountain was covered with 15 cubits of water. The same stuff that he formed and separated the earth from in the first place and he brought it as a cataclysmic judgment on the rebellion of mankind save eight people through an ark that was built by his servant, found favor with him, Noah. You know the story. But the unbeliever does not. He refuses to know. It's not that there isn't evidence. It's not that there isn't fossils on the top of the Andes and the Rockies Mountains that speak to aquatic creatures and so forth. No, he's more interested in denying the truth in his cleverly devised myth. So Peter says that these false claims are demonstrated as false and foolish when you go to the source of knowledge, when you go to the authority of what is certain and true, namely the Word of God which gives us the account of creation in the first place and also the flood in the first few chapters of the book of Genesis. So that's an example of cleverly devised myths that we find in 2 Peter chapter 3. History also records in the first century that Gnosticism was a popular notion. What was that? Well, people were just making crazy claims based on mystical sources of knowledge. The term esoteric comes to mind. It designed and understood only by the specially initiated. So people had all kinds of theories that were borrowing a little bit from science, a little bit from mysticism, a little bit from this religion, and a little bit from that. And that kind of thing is all around as well today. And what is it? It's a cleverly devised myth. How do we spot it and discern and reject it? We look to the ground of knowledge and the Holy Scriptures and recognize it as such. So those are a couple of examples in history and in the text of what could fall into that category of cleverly devised myth. Now turn with me to 1 Timothy 1. Peter's admonition is echoed. It's corroborated by another apostle. This would be Paul. And Paul's instructions for Timothy, remember the context. A young man converted, called to lead a church. Sometimes these epistles are referred to as the pastoral epistles because they give directives for how to shepherd a flock under the kind of circumstances we're talking about. So in 1 Peter chapter 1, we have some instructions in this regard. In verses 3 and 4, Paul says the following. I'm sorry, yeah, did I say Peter? Sorry, 1 Timothy 1, 3 and 4. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promotes speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. You see there, Paul, like Peter, calls Timothy 
the one whom he's discipling and training to lead the church and the next generation to not fall prey and to stamp out any claims of different doctrine, false teaching, any cleverly devised myths. And not just this heresy, which would fall under the category of different doctrine, but also distractions. Don't devote yourself to myths and endless genealogies and speculations, rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. You see, we are given a precious gift. The gospel as recorded, interpreted, and applied by the apostles in books like these, First and Second Timothy, First and Second Peter. And our calling as Christians is not to speculate and to theorize and to distract ourselves with all kinds of claims of genealogies and mystical assumptions and other claims and so forth, but instead to be stewards of the clear, unadulterated gospel and proclamation of the Word of God. And if you're interested in cleverly devised myths, well, the rabbit hole is bottomless on the internet, is it not? You can go on the internet and you can search for days and find all kinds of crazy claims. And in fact, I mean, three lifetimes, I don't know how many would be enough to plumb their depths. But we can avoid all of these potential pitfalls when we realize that most of them, many of them fall into myths, speculations, and self-promotion and distract us from the stewardship of the authority and the ground of what the scriptures absolutely say. Uh, 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5, uh, Paul goes on to reiterate this calling even with more detail if you want to study that more on your, on your own time. Suffice it to say that the weight of apostolic testimony uh, increases when we realize that it's needed in the face of false claims, cleverly devised myths. Second major point, Peter underscores the weight of apostolic testimony given qualifications, qualifications of the apostles. A brief statement uh, in context points us this direction. Verse 16, again, he says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. In verse 1, in similar language, Peter introduces himself, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Eyewitness, servant, and apostle. These three references, what is Peter referring to? Well, he goes on to describe an event in which he was particularly chosen with two other possibles to be an eyewitness too. That would be the transfiguration. So Jesus calls forth Peter, James, and John, and leads them to a mountain and reveals himself to them in glorious resplendence. We'll look at it in a minute. And this was the appointment and calling of Jesus for Peter to, be a testi to testify to as a witness to who he was and, what he, and his kingdom and what he would say. His gospel, his character, and the qualities of Christ, the uh, revelation of Christ. Peter was called to be an eyewitness of these things. Now, Paul, we just referenced him as an apostle as well. Was he an eyewitness of Jesus? Well, yes, he was. Acts chapter 9, verse 7, Paul, in his rebellion, is going to persecute more Christians. But Jesus Christ reveals himself face to face with this man on the way. How long will you kick against the goads? It's interesting, even there, that there are multiple witnesses of Paul coming face to face with the risen Jesus Christ. These qualifications that Peter gives for an agent of truth, namely an apostle, one commissioned to record, interpret, and apply the Gospels, they aren't 
in a vacuum. They aren't his idea. They come from the law of God. Again, not time to turn there today, but on your own time, consider Deuteronomy 19, 15 through 21. Here we have referenced in the amazing, awesome law of God, biblical standards of right rule, biblical standards of right law, biblical jurisprudence, you could say. Boy, we could use a dose of that in our society today. Among the qualifications for biblical jurisprudence in the law of God is that a claim is established by two or three credible witnesses. This is sufficient to establish a claim. Now, in the case of the eyewitnesses to the Mount of Transfiguration, it's interesting that three witnesses were summoned. But in the case of Jesus' life and ministry and the whole course of those events, you could turn to passages like Luke chapter 1, where Luke opens his gospel referencing that many, many, many eyewitnesses testified to Christ. And so begins his account. Uh, the apostles themselves were 12 in number. 12 be the number of completion and fullness in Scripture. Also testify to the fact that the reality of Jesus Christ and his work and what he accomplished in the incarnation as not just testified to by the bare minimum in the law of God of credible witnesses, two or three, but by many, many, many documented individuals who in their experience uh, witnessed, they heard and saw the very word of God made flesh in Jesus Christ. And their record is compiled for us in the words that we read today. What an incredible document the scriptures truly are. It meets the qualification of a legitimate witness testifying to the power, the authority, and the glory of Jesus Christ, testifying to the power and coming of our Lord and Savior. <clears throat> These were appointed, as I said before, that is, selected by Jesus himself. And later, Jesus would appoint and commission the apostles to testify to the gospel far and wide. Therefore, again, Peter underscores the weight of apostolic testimony by appealing to uh, in contrast, the false claims, the truth in contrast to the false claims. And secondly, the qualifications of those who bear witness. That would be the apostles. And number three, he references the revelation of Christ himself. Peter underscores the weight of apostolic testimony by referring to what he saw and what he heard recorded in Matthew 17. Would you turn there with me? This is the transfiguration event. In our passage, Peter says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Says that he, he references that he and those with him saw and heard things. What did they see and hear? He summarizes the event in our text today, but it's recorded for us by another witness, Matthew. In Matthew 17, 1 through 5, let's read. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and, then, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a brilliant cloud overshadowed them. Think of the Shekinah glory that followed the children 
of Israel in the wilderness. Continuing verse 5. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Behold, the disciples heard this. They fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. What did Peter see? What did Peter hear? The weight of apostolic testimony is increased when we consider this particular event. There are elements in this event that the more I've thought, the more profound they appear, and I'm sure I've missed some, but let me give you several just in a quick overview fashion. First of all, what did the disciples hear and see? The visible, the manifest glory of God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, that glory that He shared, they saw a glimpse of eternally with the Father before He took on in His humility and His call to be a suffering servant, mere humanity and the flesh like you and I have and became born of a virgin, a human being in the Incarnation. In this instance, the disciples see these witnesses testify to the manifest glory of God the Son. Secondly, they witness resurrection power. After all, how is it possible that Jesus himself could be speaking with Moses and Elijah? How is that possible? Because this man, who you assume maybe prior to was just a man, or didn't realize the extent of his majesty and glory, now your eyes wide open, realizing that in him is the power to raise the dead. So it should be no surprise when he raises himself in just a few short days. Furthermore, what do we witness in this event? What did the disciples hear and see? They witnessed the representatives of past revelation, the ground and authority, the sufficient source of knowledge represented in God's word by two individuals. One, Elijah, representing the prophets. Two, Moses, representing the law. So if you think about it, God had revealed himself through the law of Moses, through prophets like Elijah, and now the fulfillment of the law and prophets, Jesus Christ. So here in this committee, if you will, upon this mountain, were three representations of the sufficient fullness of the revelation of Jesus Christ, even as they represented uh, uh, his inscripturated word. The, uh, Moses and Elijah commissioned to record the law and the prophets and Jesus Christ, the word made flesh. Fourth, what do we witness or what do they witness in this account? The disciples, Peter, James, and John. The fulfillment of reconciliation. Men standing in the presence of God in His glory without being struck dead. Moses and Elijah had both experienced the revelation of the Lord on a mountain. Moses met the Lord on Sinai. Interestingly enough, at this time, because there was no mediator uh, evident and fulfilled in the work of Jesus Christ, the people in fear cried out rightly, You speak on our behalf. We will keep our distance. And the law of God came and told the people, because you are so sinful and God is so holy, if anyone but touches his mountain, you'll immediately die. Isn't it interesting that now God reveals himself on another mountain, and after this revelation, Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. 
Jesus touched them. How is that possible without them being immediately killed? How can man stand in the presence of an almighty God, be touched by the glory of the pure and holy and just and right and true, and not be immediately killed and excommunicated and judged in hell forever because of the weight of his sin? Well, somehow the answer to that question was wrapped up in this man, this mediator, this high priest, who is discussing with Elijah and with Moses the very burden of the sins of the disciples that witnessed him on that day that he would bear on the cross in just a few short days. Peter, James, and John witnessed this as well. They witnessed the affirmation of the Trinity, God the Father himself speaking on this holy mountain, saying, this heaven's loudspeaker, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. How many individuals in the course of all history have shared this experience? Several, very few, however, have heard the audible voice of God the Father echoing from the realms of glory through heaven's loudspeaker, the revealed truth of the gospel, the Word made flesh, His incarnate Son sent as their Savior and Lord. But it happened on this day. And they were witnesses and testified to this very thing. Anyway, this transfiguration event, I submit, we can only underestimate its glory and the reality of the staggering effect that it would have if you could but be there. Wow, we might wish, I wish I was there. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Now I wonder what we would take away from that experience. We know what Peter took away from that experience when we go back to our text today. What did he take away? The power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 1, 16 again. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. In summary, when Peter, as a commissioned and anointed apostle, recounted the events of the transfiguration and expounded upon their meaning, what message did he proclaim to the church? The power and the coming of our Lord Jesus. We're talking two comings here. The first in humility, where he would take upon himself the sins of all who would trust and believe. But the second was the assurance of a second coming in victory, reckoning, and glory. Will he when he will return to escort his faithful home and then level judgment on all the unrepentant, akin to the days of Noah, forever and without end, so that all of the created realm, the new heaven and new earth, is purged of any stain or remnant of sin until the only thing that remains is Jesus Christ come in His full and final manifest power and glory. How do we know this will happen? Because His face was shining on the Mount of Transfiguration, and it was witnessed by Peter, James, and John, and it was proof positive, a message upon which to bank your soul's future, that there is a coming day of judgment and a reckoning before a holy God. Cling to Him. Only the touch of Jesus Christ and those nail-pierced hands will allow you to endure the day of His coming. At first He seemed humble, unassuming, a baby in a manger. Didn't turn many heads, but some people's eyes were open. 
They were the ones for whom the Spirit worked upon their hearts like the shepherds who recognized, like the wise men who affirmed that in this lowly manger lay one who had come again in power and in glory. This is the message of the transfiguration. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ that Peter testifies to. This is what we are to take away from it. I don't know what you've heard over the years about the meaning and significance of these moments, but I've heard all kinds of crazy stuff. One message, just by contrast, to encourage you to practice discernment, I'll reference. I heard one popular preacher say one time, conflating two Greek words, that be transformed by the renewing of your mind shares the same Greek word as the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. And so what we witness in the transfiguration is the spiritual potential of anyone uh, who is fully operating in everything God has called you to be. Does that sound like the right message? Does that sound like the right interpretation? Does that sound like that pastor is proclaiming what we are to take away? No, it does not. It elevates man. Oh, I can exercise my full spiritual potential just like Jesus was shining in all his radiant glory. If I but follow him and obey him, I can share in the same kind of radiant glory. This is twisting of scripture. How do I know? Because Peter tells me what to take away and he was there. The power and the coming of Jesus Christ. And so he equips us, Peter does, the apostle, to judge messages like this and assumptions like this. Some of them might be in your own mind. Perhaps you've thought too little of Jesus Christ. Perhaps you view him as a, a, a friend, a buddy. You know, somebody that doesn't have the same weight, majesty, honor, reverence, and authority that God the Father testified to on that holy mountain. Perhaps your eyes need to be open. That your assumptions of the very approachable and, meaning, and amenable Jesus Christ is just a mascot of your idolatrous failed worldview. Perhaps you need to repent and consider the weighty glory of what is proclaimed in the transfiguration. What is proclaimed in the elements at his table today. So that, yes, we should approach this table with overwhelming relief and joy, but we shouldn't do it with ourself as the center of heaven's attention. No! Put your attention on Jesus Christ. He is the center of history, and upon Him hinges our hope for eternal life. And in His body and blood is the only sufficient price to satisfy the judgment to our sin. Final point this morning. Peter underscores the weight of apostolic testimony given Claims against uh, the truth claims against the contrary, qualifications of the apostles, the revelation of Jesus Christ, and finally, the standard of truth. And I submit that there's an argument from the lesser to greater that he introduces, and this is just phenomenal in verses 19 through 21. Listen. Peter says, after expounding on this transfiguration moment that we've just considered, he says, and we have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. More sure than witnessing with your own two eyes and own two ears the events of the second person of the Trinity revealed in resplendent pre-incarnate glory on that holy mountain? What could be more profound than that? Peter says the prophetic word, the word which if the Holy Spirit is a is uh, pleased today, is proclaiming in your hearing this morning the word that you hold in your hands as you read it in the English translation in your devotional study through the week. This is more profound still, Peter says. How could this possibly be true? As to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. Verse 20, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, 
But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter points to the very standard of truth as his epistemology, if you will, as his reference for the authority and ground of knowledge. And what is that standard of truth? It is the Holy Word of God, which he references as the prophetic word. In Luke 24, 27, you might recall, two men are on the way to Emmaus, distraught disciples, discouraged because the day's events, their Savior and Lord and Messiah was crucified. Jesus revealed himself to them, did he not, on the road to Emmaus? Did he do so by a transfiguration event? At first they didn't recognize him. How did he reveal himself? The scriptures say in Luke 24 that he opened up the law and the prophets and all the scriptures and revealed himself to them by that means. Why? Peter tells us why. Because we have something more sure than the eyewitness testimony in the Mount of Transfiguration, the prophetic word. Another parable <coughs> Jesus gave, or there's some dispute. So in a story that Jesus account, uh, account and it's a, it's a situation where there's a man in hell and there's the man in the bosom of Abraham representing the favor of God in heaven, let's say. And there's a dialogue between the two. And the man in hell says, go, reveal yourself, would you please? This one request I make to my brothers, to my family. And if they see you raised from the dead, truly they would believe. What does Jesus say? They have the law and the prophets. They'll listen to them. Jesus rose from the dead. And men remain blind to the evidence of his power and glory. And I am here to encourage you that in your testimony, you have something more profound and powerful than your own personal burning bush experience. You could go out and raise a bunch of money, sell a bunch of books, and do a whole conference tour. You know, I went to heaven and came back, and here I am with my awesome story to tell you how the grass bounces up, you know, when you walk. I remember stories like that where I, a guy who claimed to go to heaven, looked behind him, and the grass bounces up. It's just amazing. So I don't know why I remember that little tri uh, trivial detail. But what do these books and these accounts often assume? That there is something more powerful in our experience than there is in the written word of God. Never mind your tourist tri uh, trip to glory. They have the law and the prophets. Sisters, brothers in Christ, this is where the authority rests. When people challenge you, the scoffers of our day, with their cleverly devised myths and presuppose and their skepticism, naturalism, what do you point to? Well, first and foremost, the most powerful appeal we have is to point to the Word of God. You have no excuse not to believe. This world was created by our Lord in six short days. And it just takes a moment for His day of reckoning to come and all men must answer where they stand in relationship to Him. And I know this because of the flood. Do you know why the flood came? Ask them that question. When you pursue a conversation according to these terms, you're appealing to your most profound foundational truth. It's the weapon. Why do the scriptures describe the sword of the Spirit as that two-edged offensive weapon? Take up the sword of the Spirit. It's because it's, more, it's our most powerful and precise engineered tool against the cleverly devised myths of our day and the scoffers in whatever form they present themselves. Wield the sword. Was it not the word of God that the Lord wield in your life? when you finally submitted to the absolute truth of himself revealed in his holy scriptures? Well, the calling uh, that we're supposed to follow in the footsteps of is echoing that very thing to all who might listen, and even if they don't. Peter says, pay attention. Notice. He says, we have something more sure, verse 19, 
the prophetic word to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Just to get a little Greek original language nerdy on you, but sometimes the look at the original language can actually yield more depth to the text. And I think this is an example. That word, that term pay attention in the Greek also carries with it the connotations to set your course by something. In other words, set your course by the prophetic word is the language here. Set your course by it. To set a course and keep it, the word, uh, hold, the, the word directs you. Set a course and keep it according to the prophetic word. And this is poetically interesting because the idea of stars and courses come into view as well. In other words, uh, set your course according to the word of God as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So the promises of glory and the second coming of Jesus Christ are like that distant star. The cleverly devised myths get you all twisted up and turned and dizzy and stumbling and blind and you don't know where to go. The word of God shines as a lamp to set your course towards that star that is the fullness of Jesus Christ revealed in his second coming in the meantime, whatever trials come and however long it takes. After all, Peter goes on to say, a day with the Lord is as a thousand years. Do you have sufficient light? Does the church have sufficient light to set that course toward the morning star for thousands of years? Absolutely she does. But it's not your experience, first and foremost. It is the prophetic word by which your experience is to be judged. It's not your subjective preferences. It's not the word of some expert here or there or everywhere, some new improved idea, some esoteric Gnostic claim. No, it is the prophetic word of God, rightly understood, rightly divided, and authoritatively proclaimed. To this you do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in the dark place, until the coming of our Lord. Seems like we've been waiting a long time. The scoffer says, you're an idiot, you've waited so long. But we say, no, we have set our course by the lamp of the prophetic word unto the day, the revealing of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself appeals first and foremost to the epistemological authority of prior revelation and Luke 24, 27, which we said before, the word of God and even over the ears and eyes of the two on the road to Emmaus who are beholding in their experience the risen Christ. What a great encouragement to us because we had, have in the word, what they had by Jesus' own lips. Pay attention. This is a sufficient instrument whereby to set a course and keep it. It poetically corresponds to this reference of the morning star. The scriptures, perhaps you could say it this way, are the instrument by which we chart our course toward glory and the glorious one. The scriptures are the instrument whereby we chart our course toward glory and the glorious one. And who is he? The morning star. Numbers 24, 17, prophecy of Balaam. It says a star is going to come from Judah. Revelation 22, 16 through 17, Jesus says in his own first person words to John the revelator, I am the morning star. Hallelujah. Set your course toward the morning star. In the book of Revelation, is he a weak, anemic, you know, person that can be ignored? Jesus is revealed in his power and glorious prerogative to judge and his ability to do so and to rule with a rod of iron any idolater who rebelliously opposes his word now and forever. 
And to him, the bright and morning star, we set our course by taking seriously his prophetic word. Final point this morning under the standard of truth. I hope your, uh, the view of Scripture is rising, your value of it, proportional to a deeper understanding, perhaps, of what Peter points our attention to in these passages. He closes this passage by referencing divine inspiration or the equivalent concept. Verses 20 and 21, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. In other words, what's the nature of this book you hold in your hand? It's not produced by the will of man. It's unique. It says, verse 21, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Carried along by the Holy Spirit. You remember Balaam, I just referenced him. He was a crook, a deceiver, a con man, an opportunist. He was a diviner, a necromancer, and whatever else, false prophet. But there was a prophecy that turned out to be Scripture, where he said, in spite of himself, that out of Judah would arise a star. <clears throat> that star rose, signifying that Jesus Christ was born, and dignitaries from the east followed it unto Jesus Christ himself, fulfilling Balaam's words. How in the world could this crook, this false prophet, be speaking the word of God? It's because what Peter says is true. In spite of himself, in that moment, Balaam was carried along by the Holy Spirit and could not help but speak the truth in that moment. Now, this is the quality of all of the recorded scriptures. <clears throat> the Holy Spirit carried along. That word is the same, by the way, another little note in the test linguistically. The word carried along, translated carried along, is the same as verse 18, born from heaven, born, past tense of bear. So that verb to bear, to take up, to lift and to carry. Past participle, maybe. So many grammar people can correct me on that if it's wrong. I think the past participle verb form of bear is born. Anyway, and then again in 17, for when he received the honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him, by the majestic glory, it's the same word, to pick up and to carry. Now, putting this together, we have a view, an apostolic witness to the nature of the scriptures, the divinely inspired prophetic word. It is not according to the genius of a theologian or a religious expert. It is not according to the will of man or the best attempt for man to make sense out of his culture at the time. But these instead were true prophets who wrote the inscripturated word, carried along, born, lifted and carried by the word of God. You can put it this way. Just as the testimony of Jesus' power coming, uh, Jesus' power coming, majesty honor and glory was lifted and carried to Peter, James, and John by the audible words of the Father. So the message of the gospel is lifted and carried by the authors of Scripture to our ears today insomuch as it has been rightly proclaimed. And let me go further to add at the Lord's table that the message of the gospel is lifted and carried, is born, as it were, by the Lord's table to our senses this morning. And how powerful is this means to lift, to carry, to bear, to communicate to our souls the truth? Well, Peter uses the same word to describe the very audible voice from glory bearing to the ears of the disciples the power, 
the majesty, the coming, the glory, and the honor of Jesus Christ himself, the second person of the Trinity. Have we underestimated the sharpness of the sword we hold in our hands when we open the Holy Scriptures? Have we underestimated the great privilege of the Lord's table, with ba which bears to our experience and senses the very cost of redemption, communicating to us that our sins are atoned for once for all and with certainty upon the shed blood and broken body of Jesus Christ? If the answer is yes, and to some degree I know it is for all of us, this morning is opportunity to repent, to say, Lord, I'm sorry, because I've considered that you are smaller. I've, I've, I have not considered how powerful, glorious, and majestic you are, dear Jesus Christ. I've taken too lightly my salvation. I've thought of myself as defenseless in a wicked culture when I have the hydrogen bomb of the scriptures to cast in the way of the cleverly devised myths of the fools of my day. Forgive me, Lord. So you find yourself in those shoes as I do before the word of God revealed in Peter's testimony, uh, you can gain great encouragement that all we need to do is come to the table and ask that the Lord would use these very means to open our eyes afresh to the weight of our sin and the assurance of our pardon, our salvation, our sins atoned for on Jesus, broken body and spilled blood. And we can turn to the scriptures with renewed dependency and zeal this week as we open them, knowing that they sufficiently contain the power to combat any tyranny, any idol, any cleverly devised myth of our day and then some. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God will abide forever. Let us transition in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your holy word and its power and its authority. I pray that we would bow before our Lord Jesus Christ as he has been revealed by the apostolic witness of Peter and those who testified to the same from Genesis to Revelation. This morning as we approach your table, may we do so with hearts of flame, with just a passion, remembrance, a glorious relief and a joy that's overwhelming, unspeakable, and full of glory, and at the same time, a reverence and an awe and a fear of the mountain-shaking power of the only God who can wash away and forgive sins in the blood of His incarnate Son. Lord, I pray that by these means your church would be equipped, and by the proclamation of your scriptures, the lost would confess and believe and turn from their stupid and weak and foolish Dagon-like idols, which at the day of your coming, even in partial revelation, like crumbled in the tents and the altars and in the pagan temples of the Philistines, made with human hands in the first place, having eyes but can't see, mouths that can't speak, ears but can't hear. How will they fare before the living God? Lord, I pray that the revelation of the power and coming of Jesus Christ would cause this wicked and adulterous culture not to seek a sign that you haven't already given, but to bow before the sign that you have provided, the resurrected and ascended Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to repent and to believe. Father, I pray that you would give us grace and mercy, give us the appropriate love and the conviction to relay these words to the lost and those you've called us to disciple in order that you might be glorified, your kingdom advanced, the name of Jesus Christ exalted, and your church equipped. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.